0: Why don't you explain this to me like I am an eight-year-old?
1: I decided to forego the little intro thing this round. Just cause Travis was here, we were talking about like monkeys and the I was telling him there's this lab here that I guess I don't know if they do like testing or if they're like a using them for genes or whatever. Travis probably knows. I
0: mean it's um, different for different things.
1: But there's a whole island where I don't know if like they put them out there because like Travis was saying they're a retired breeder or like or what, but there's literally an entire island not that far from my house. Where it's just an island full of macaques interesting there's there's signs around it and you can drive by on a by boat and like see them on the beach just hanging out and stuff
2: that's crazy
1: always a running joke in high school like who's gonna go out to morgan island and live with the the macaque for a night and get how many ever diseases they they probably
2: carry out there yeah right oof crazy
0: things we don't want to have that's That's right. right
1: But things we do want to have is episode 83 of Snakes and Stogies, which this is. Yes. This is brought to you by the fine folks at Puget Sound Pythons. Macaque. That's those, uh, they're, they're monkeys. They're native to like India and all over Southeast Asia, right? Yes. Yes. Just, I thought it, it's not just in India. Like they have them in China and stuff too, don't they?
2: Yeah, they Thailand they're and there's, like there's species in Japan. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So there are these primates that are, I guess, used for testing in some regard or something. There's a place out, out in the sticks, that has a whole facility of them. And they're always telling. I was telling Wyman, there's like if you go on Indeed, there's always a job opening there. Like they constantly have openings in multiple positions usually too. Like their turnover must be horrible. But who knows? That would be kind of a depressing job. There's Henry, look. Um, So, Dr. Travis Wyman is with us once again. Uh, Cody is going to hop back on here in a few minutes and talk about the RPP event before Daytona. And then we have a bunch of really dumbed-down questions to ask Wyman that will probably make him wonder if we have some sort of mental uh, impediment.
0: No. No. You guys just are not as familiar with this crazy stuff as I am. So <laughs> that's all it is.
1: My, my, my list of, of questions is always stuff that I just, I always think about and forget to ask you. And they're, it's really like sort of bizarre. How did this get here kind of stuff? But I told Phil to put together some questions too, but I don't know if he actually did it or not. He just sent me. I, uh
2: I did send you, I sent you a, a gif of Jack Black saluting. <laughs> Yes. Yes, but I have questions and I have a couple other things I wanted to you know, cuz I have questions for raps, right?
1: Raps. Yes. Raps. We can talk about that a little bit, but we're Okay. We're, we're we're orchestrating a more in-depth episode with yes, this guy right here and some of the other folks involved. So. yes. It's just a matter of getting everyone's schedule together at once.
2: Yes. I also have uh, uh, unique ball python questions as of 48 minutes ago. So we'll, we'll, I definitely want to touch base on that later on when uh, you know things have equaled out, so to speak.
1: What oh, are you smoking upon?
2: Well, I'm still sick. <clears throat> and uh, because of that, I don't want to necessarily... First of all, I want to be able to enjoy the smoke that I'm going to smoke, but I also didn't want to smoke anything too crazy because I feel like I'd be wasting it if it yeah, doesn't yeah. if it doesn't pan out. So, I just got a uh, <clears throat> a Lenox for tonight. I figured it was bold enough that I might enjoy it in some regard, and if it if I don't enjoy it, <laughs> who cares? It's cheap.
1: I'm not feeling well, and my 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 throat is stuffy. Let me smoke this cigar that's going to turn my saliva into like molasses.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't have COVID. I can taste everything and smell everything, and I don't have fever-like symptoms, but I, everyone keeps telling me it's allergies, but I don't know,
1: man. I've been sneezing a lot more a lot lately, and I think it's, A, we've had a lot of rain, and I think it's like, there's usually like, first, spring first shows up, I get a little nasally and stuff because of allergies, and then it goes away, and then usually there's like another spike or two somewhere in there where I all of a sudden just feel stuffed up and
2: well, I mean, I, I think it's the normal crud that we get throughout the year, but because we're all not, we haven't seen other humans for a year, and now I'm getting I'm getting something that normally would happen at Christmas, and now I'm getting it in July, so who the hell knows?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it has been predicted that we are going to have a very nasty cold RSV and flu season this year because... You know, when everybody was wearing masks, they weren't getting passed around, and now everybody's not going to wear masks, and so everybody's just going to get hit
3: with
2: everything.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: it makes sense. So you could
0: keep wearing your mask, and that would help. You know, but try getting people to wear masks when there's a pandemic, and it's <laughs> right. right. <laughs>
1: ain't, no, ain't no commie doctor going to tell me to wear a mask, and that these these colors don't run. That cold virus ain't got nothing. Right. I'll put it in a, a a Randy Macho Man Savage headlock and feed it a Slim Jim while I take it down. Amen, hey, brother. <clears throat> Codith, How's it going, guys? Oh, he lives.
4: He's going here. Well.
1: He is here. Here I am. Let me do this, turn up my volume without burning my screen. Um, so real quick, we got these Grand Perfecto Roma Craft. And I've tried, this is the last one, I've tried all of them. So the Aquitaine, the regular Cro-Magnon, the Intemperance Connecticut, this Intemperance Maduro, and then the Whiskey Rebellion. The Connecticut is awesome. Cro-Magnon's awesome. Aquitaine's awesome. We can get back to that later. But Cody is here to talk about the upcoming party uh, before Daytona.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah, I... uh... I didn't really get a good chance to plug it other than just kind of cruising by it the other night. And then with everything going on, I was just uh, distracted, ran out of time, yapped too much like I always do, and, and ran out of time I'm just going from one tangent to another. So I figured, jump on, say my piece real quick, and let you guys get on the for the rest of your evening. So, yeah. Um, you guys, have anything to say before I take a breath of air and talk no. for the next 15 we're,
1: minutes? We're looking forward <laughs> to it, man. Fire it off. So yeah, it is. Okay. It is going to be catered. So if there, you need another excuse to go, there's, I mean, there's going to be food. There's usually a lot of alcohol. So
4: yeah, oh yeah. I mean, when you're dealing with with reptile folks, there's definitely going to be some booze there. With you know for sure, um, but there's going to be catered food, and it's going to be a local. Uh, catered uh, barbecue that we've had before it was um, we had it catered I think it was for the last carpet fest Justin I, I don't remember because you know what I didn't get any other than the last scraps yeah prep. I was I was too busy <laughs> bouncing around you know being a host and not being a, it's you know it's way more fun to, to go as a patron than go you know be the host because when you're the host you got to do uh, you know, you have to make sure everything is staying on track and people are being good and all that stuff. And then, of course, you're socializing with everybody. And then before you know it, it's 430 in the morning and you haven't eaten yet. So that's kind of what happened to me last time. And I think it was that uh, that good barbecue, was it? It's
1: so- saucy and southern. I just looked it up.
4: OK, yeah. So we we learned about those guys through our good friend Matt Cruz, who uh, runs Wild Thing Ex- Exotic Animals in Middleburg as a exotic pet shop and those those guys were friends and theirs and had catered for them and uh, had a food truck at that time or something i'm not sure if they still have the food truck but um, they also catered for a buzz for buzz buzz for buzz event that was held at carl Barden's place med and venom laboratories and reptile discovery center and that's where i actually did get to enjoy their food because i was there for the buzz for buzz event and i wasn't putting it on so i actually got to enjoy the food it was really good they have um like several like they do their own barbecue sauce so they have some really cool like they had like some blueberry barbecue sauce that was made obviously made with with real blueberries and it was really good so the food is good that's going to be catered um so the event's going to be august 19th which i said on the on the last um the last last week (laughs) or last friday when was that when was i on with you guys thursday Thursday, you know, whatever.
1: <laughs> all the what days, are those days,
4: all, all those days just blend together. Yeah, it actually but, went uh,
1: like to midnight, so it counts. Yeah, yeah. So
4: Friday, Thursday, there's the Thursday into Friday. Interview Thursday, Thursday into and Friday. Friday. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I touched on it a little bit, but it's going to be August nineteenth. It's going to be a Thursday. It's going to be the Thursday that the the Thursday that falls be before the friday that sets off the daytona expo with all the talks and where everybody just starts getting there for setup and what have you uh so since we didn't we weren't able to do a carpet fest uh this year um and a brony ales was coming right around the corner as well since we put on that uh event virtually the year before has that been
1: has that been a year already since a (laughs) brony
4: it's get Yeah. It's going on. And yeah. I can't remember again, like the, the days just blur together, the hours, the weeks, every, every, everything, it just blurs together. But um, so kind of incorporating a little bit of that in, in, in as well um, for just kind of all encompassing big reptile preservation party where we're going to, the funds earned are going to go to a few different places, mm-hmm. including, uh, you know, uh, virus research like before, which I think um, all the funds for, for that part of it are going to just be Donated to UF, the University of Florida to kind of allocate the way, you know, to to what needs to be done or what have you. And then as well as some other different conservation initiatives, one of them going to uh, Mexicam um, Safari, which is uh, in Mexico and does uh, does work with Abronia and and conservation initiatives with that. So um, all all that's unraveling as well. But um, so, you know, we figured. Daytona was a good time, you know, at least around there. Obviously, you don't want to do it the weekend of Daytona because that's going to be, mm-hmm. you know, compete, competing for people's time. But that Thursday is going to be, you know, if people are rolling in, uh, you know, a day or two early and want to come out and uh, have some good food, hang out with some awesome people, see some cool reptiles, and uh, listen to some good talks because we're going to have a, a speaker list lined up and all of that is uh, slowly getting posted up as we ha- we have speakers that are coming, uh, Steve Tillis being one of them. And, um, you know, so so there'll be those guys to enjoy listening to them uh, talk about this and that while you're enjoying your food and your adult beverage of choice. Or, you know, if you don't drink, you could have, like, you know, a turnip or something. I don't know what people drink when they don't drink. Manmosas? Um, manmosas. Oh, well, manmosas. Those are for the morning... After to get your uh, get your day going, a manma mo- Now we're saying manmosa, not mamosa. Manmosa was taught to me by my beautiful wife Pia, who uh, showed me this years and years ago. And a manmosa is basically just blue moon and orange juice versus champagne. So it's you've got that that beer that complements with. An orange already. Basically, half the glass is orange juice, half the glass is Blue Moon, and it makes for a reason to drink in the morning before you start your they day. They are like a,
1: very delicious.
4: They are very delicious, and they could be dangerous. Definitely drink them when you don't have anything to do. Certainly don't drink them before you work venomous snakes. But they are nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they are a nice way to start maybe a, a Sunday morning or something with the friends or. Uh, whatever, the day after this uh, reptile preservation party, when you need a little bit of, of the hair of the dog to get back in the game to get you through Daytona weekend. Crawl it's back gonna to be, zero. It's going to be tough, man, because it's going to be, you know, the reptile preservation party, it's probably going to be a party following, you know, then, we, then I have to be around for Daytona weekend, which is a, which I, I jokingly call my spring break, you know, like the cantoon for reptile people. You got the beach, <laughs> you've got drinking, you know, it's it's the it's the weekend where I kind of get away from everything that we do and I could kind of socialize and and drink like it's the end of the world. And then, you know, back back to usual on Monday. But, um, yeah, so, you know, there's going to be a lot a lot going on that we, we picked that Thursday because if, if people want to make it out, that's great. It's already tying into.
1: Yeah, um, it's not a far drive either, too. Right. It's only like an hour and 15 ish
4: um i think gps is an a, hour
1: and a half but i got it i got there sooner than that yeah i, I guess faster.
4: just i just i uh, guess depend on which way you're coming from and which which, which <clears> road you take um you know it's about an hour 40 for us just going on country roads and it's an easy drive you know you're not hitting traffic any of the way through there until you hit daytona and then it's just a couple street lights and you're at the ocean center um mm-hmm. and uh so it, it's pretty easy, you know, um, sometimes we won't even get a hotel down there or stay down there and we'll just we'll just drive back if if there's not anything happening. The parties the last few years kind of seem to have died down a little bit where, you know, we would rage until the sun comes up, you know, years passed, And then it seems like a lot of people have been kind of retiring around midnight, uh, you know, and I just, I don't know, maybe everybody's just getting older and just doesn't want to do it getting anymore. old. Yeah, you know, it also could be because fish and wildlife also is, uh, you know, uh, taken away. I mean, like, I don't want to get into the p- politics of all that, but I would say that, you know, th- there's a lot of stuff you have to do here in Florida to become, to be a vendor at, at the expo. Like all these out-of-staters have to fill out Florida import permits to bring out, bring in all of their inventory from out-of-state. Doesn't matter if it's a bunch of corn snakes or something, if it's coming in from out-of-state they're going to have, you know, green tree pythons, whatever it is, you know, they're going to have to put on that. It's a no cost import permit, but they have to fill it out what they're bringing. And then they have to get a class three permit to be able to sell fish and wildlife is obviously checking all of those things as they go around the tables and and harass people for their paperwork. Um, You know, obviously all the big constrictors and stuff are on the prohibited list. Now a lot of the Mm -hmm. things are slowly, slowly becoming on the prohibited list, you know, and I mean, a lot of this stuff, the reptile industry made their bed and have to lie in it. Not a lot, like a, a, a few. And these are this is stuff that's happened, you know, four decades ago. But you know, all the new keepers are having to kind of suffer for that. Like I said on the last interview, I would say that the general, like like these days, the general reptile keeping, uh, you know, profession people are a lot better than they used to be. Every I think most people don't want their animals out they don't want the pr nightmare they don't just want to they don't want to lose their animal to begin with they want to make sure that these things are contained And i would say most people are very responsible in this industry but it's the handful of people that aren't that have helped create these these new regulations but a lot of them you know like this is stuff that's been in the making for decades but enough of the general public has complained about let's say tegus and iguanas in their yard ripping up their flowers or whatever and 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 now the state has to do something about it. And if, if it's putting them on a prohibited list to get the general public to say, you know, it's like, hey, this is what we did. This is what we're doing. And the general public goes, thanks. You know, it's like, they don't care. They don't see the reason why you should have any reptiles at all. You know, it's, it's like, we're just on a constant. Um, we're constantly defending ourselves. We're on the offensive all the time. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's just tough. So I think, um, you know, like we're Tinley and a lot of these other shows, that are in other states that haven't restricted large constrictors and other, other things. It's those shows are, are becoming a little bit more popular, um, because of that versus Daytona where it's still kind of, it still goes on. The show goes on. Um, but it's just, you know, it's not the Daytona of legends
2: that you heard about, you know, a decade ago or more. It's going to be a good year. I I, I was just going to say, I think this year is going to be one of the best years that we've had in probably a decade because There's so many people coming out of the woodworks. I'm very optimistic for this year, but I do see what you're saying.
1: Yeah, no, and I do I, hope I, people go to this party as a result because there's yeah. gonna be more people.
4: No, I mean, I, I do too. I, I 100% hope that everything you know is uh it goes good and more more guest attendants show up and it uh it's successful, you know, not not for our own party but just for Daytona. Like, I think that um, you know. It, it is what it is, but uh, we as uh, keepers in general, just as long as we keep trying to be optimistic and doing doing the right thing, and like we say, you know, like integrity is what what you do when nobody's watching. As long as everybody's doing that stuff and being good and policing themselves, we should have an industry for for years to come, hopefully, um, and and all of that. But to, to not get off on a total tangent, um, but uh, yeah, so it's. Uh, So anybody that's listening, uh, the Thursday before Daytona, August 19th, we're going to have barbecue. We're going to have, we're going to have beer. We're going to have drinks. We're going to have talks. We're going to have good people. Um, we do encourage, and I've been, I've been asked to say this by all of our, uh, everybody that's contributing to, uh, promoting this and all that. Uh, please, if you're, if you're hearing this and you are coming, uh, let us know that you're coming. Uh, there's a Facebook page, uh, for this. And you'll, seeing more promotion as it gets closer to that time but if you are gonna go just click that going uh button so we so we can kind of get a gauge on how many people are going to be there so we know for food and drinks and stuff like that you know just like
2: and how do people how do people that are actually going to attend and as well how are people on the internet buying tickets
4: um so i do believe that you uh that's gonna I, obviously it's all online but i i think you can navigate your way through uh it, the there's
1: facebook. a link on the on the facebook event page okay for yeah. the event there's a link to all that so
4: there you go thank you justin thank you for that i, I have as you guys could probably tell i i I've haven't really yeah well thank you very much because i i have not so much sorry i'm uh, standing out on a roadway we just we just dropped off some rodents and i'm uh, at uh at Big Dogs uh, Sports Grill and Restaurant with with Daniel, uh, he's inside eating. I just dropped out to to come and do this. So you're gonna hear motorcycles driving by and stuff. So yeah, what Justin said uh, through the Facebook thing, you can navigate your way to purchase a ticket. Um, I'm sure we'll we'll do stop at the door as well if people show up and have you know brought a friend or brought people. You know, obviously everybody's money is green, so we'll. We'll take that. Obviously, it's going to conservation and, and um, you know, helping to. And then we've, we've got all of our sponsors that are helping with uh, the food and all that. And I'll, I'll plug all the sponsors here in a sec um, that are that are helping making this possible. When you do these events, of course, you do need some sponsorships to, to pay for all the things like food and you know, additional seating and, and booze and all the, all the good stuff. So we definitely appreciate everybody who's uh, sponsored, uh, so far. I guess this is a good time to, to just get into that, huh? Um, we've, yeah, we've got- if there's,
1: well, if there's anyone that's interested in, in becoming a sponsor, get in contact with Pia. Um, there's a couple different tier options. Um, she's the one to talk to if you want to be a sponsor and then there is an auction that we are putting together so if you have an item or a voucher or something that you'd like to donate as well contact me or pia and we will make that happen
2: yeah i also i also want to touch base too is uh, there's a few people that i've reached out to that i know follow the show um that are planning on sponsoring uh if you do still plan on sponsoring feel free uh it's uh i believe it's reptile preservation at gmail.com is that correct cody
4: yeah yeah that sounds right okay yep
2: and uh and i also have some local to local to me um south florida herpetofauna artists that are going to be doing some uh, uh digital graphic art that'll be up for auction for logos or whatever some voucher type stuff as well as some actual physical art um, from a couple uh local artists that are too tip top just crazy reptile and amphibian art so we're going to get those up in the auction as well. So it's not just going to be, you know, the the stereotypical cliche auction items. We're getting more art and some books and some other stuff out there. So it'll be awesome. Yeah, I'm right excited. now
1: we're compiling everything. I don't know that there's an actual date as to when the we want, I think, the auction to start. So we're still sort of planning that, but we are getting stuff together for it. So if you have something you want to throw in, please let one of us know.
4: Yeah, yeah very good very good so but who's um,
1: sponsoring so far who's 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 on the list so,
4: so we've got cold blooded cafe our good friends at cold blooded cafe um and uh sea serpents reptile racks uh, we uh we've got uh, uh wiregrass exotics who is our good friend uh good friends dallas and amanda rua they, they just uh started up a new uh, exotic pet shop in, um, in Alabama All the Wiregrass Exotics and uh, it's looking like it's going good so far. So these guys are sponsors and uh, and they're just awesome people. They don't need to be sponsors, but they chose to be sponsors and, and, and I'm sure everybody appreciates it. We appreciate them. We actually met Dallas and Amanda at uh, Carpet Fest and I think it was, it was whatever the first Carpet Fest was here it in was Florida. It was
1: 2019, I think.
4: Well, that was our, we had a Carpet Fest 2019, um, so it must have been 2018 when it was at Dave Colombo's place in oh, uh, yeah, Coral, yeah. Florida. So, um, and that's where we met Dallas and Amanda and hit up, literally at the end of the uh, the party too, and, and uh, you know, hit it off in the parking lot and they were close, uh, you know, like 30 minutes or... or uh, family of theirs lived right down the road from us so is uh and we got to be close friends until they moved to alabama now they're now they're far friends so um but uh they are their sponsors as well as uh socrates who's a good is a good friend of ours who does uh, uh condors and green tree pythons um uh, here in florida and uh and the, li- and the list goes on i'm trying to dig it all up because all you guys are doing all the promotion stuff. I'm not definitely not going to take credit for anything, obviously, because it sounds like <laughs> I'm, cluel- I'm clueless to what's going on because I'm so stuck with my head in the trenches to make sure there's a decent spot for everybody to show up to that. Uh, you know, that's kind of the point of having other capable people that could delegate all this different stuff and make sure it's happening.
3: Um, it takes a village.
4: It does take a village. Uh, but we do have some, some more sponsors here that I'm trying to dig up. But uh, and 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 more, I'm sure more sponsors piling in. You know, as, as the uh, weeks draw closer, so I'm sure we'll be on a couple more, uh, you know, interviews or what have you. We'll, we'll plug those guys at that time. So if 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 you are a sponsor and I'm leaving you out, um, please don't uh, don't hate me for it. You could take all. All questions and concerns and um, and complaints to Pia and Nick Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> and you could and you could say Cody sent you. Um, but um, yeah, um, anything else that you guys like uh, want me to yap about about the thing? Or are you guys ready to just get me um, out or what?
1: No, I think that think that covered it. We'll, uh, we'll definitely be announcing, you know, when the auctions are up and running. Um, I think we were going to uh, try to avoid doing Facebook, like doing it on Facebook, but I don't know that that's going to be a possibility because there's still some website stuff that I was in charge of orchestrating, and I don't I don't know if we'll have something workable by then, so we'll see.
4: Gotcha. But- oh, I got a couple more sponsors looking at it. Exotic <clears throat> Jungles uh, slash Iguana Grub, a sponsor. Thank you. And M&J, ecological sponsor. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I, I hit on the ones that I've got in front of me. <laughs> so if you're a sponsor, I know you're not on there. I apologize. We still appreciate you. Um, but, yeah, it, it will definitely – I mean, you know how these things are. They're fun. It's socializing. It's hanging out. Um, uh, obviously, like the last the last couple of carpet fests, everyone was very respectful. Um we didn't have any problems. We didn't have any issues. It would be nice to keep them going that way. I would think a lot of the people that are showing up, they want to be there. They're excited for that. You know, I don't think anybody's messing stuff up or getting drunk and, and starting fights for, you know, for these kind of events, maybe some bigger events, but but something like this. I think it's always pretty. Well, no, pretty... man.
1: If, if Travis was there, he might. He's a, he's a wild man.
4: All right, all right. Um, he's just but... a maniac. Um, and and you know we do we do have a a, a few adjacent neighbors in our area, so um, you know up until ten o'clock we could I think it, we didn't have any problems with with noise or anything before. But anybody who's listening to this, you know, um, didn't come into it with a not totally getting trashed and uh, you know making a ruckus kind of mindset. So so our so our neighbors a dull roar. Yeah, keep it to a dull roar so our neighbors, uh, you know, don't like us and continue to support us in our endeavors uh, of, of building this uh, reptile zoological facility and don't try to, you know, kick us out of where we are because they hate us because of all the noise and whatnot. But so far, so good. We, uh, we're pretty good with I don't. If we
1: haven't had an issue yet, I think we're probably okay.
4: Yeah, I think so. Um, but uh, so with I mean, with that being said, it's gonna be a good time. Um, like I said before, if you if you're going, let us know online. You can get your tickets on online, like Justin said, or uh, uh, pay at the door. Um, all the I, I think it's 27 bucks a person to get in, um, and all mm-hmm. that all that is going towards everything that we're throwing the money money at. Uh, virus uh, research, conservation initiatives for cloud forest stuff. Uh, everybody's aware of the Abroni Alliance where we're kind of restructuring everything into the cloud forest alliance. Because, And, and we could elaborate on that more later Mm-hmm. Um, but it's gonna, it was something that I was supposed to touch on the last talk, but well, you know, you guys can get me on anytime you want, you know, you got, you got to kind of pin me down. Pia basically told me, uh, you got to go on tonight the other week. And I said, all right, you know, that's how you pin me down. Just, all right, you're, you're coming on. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so because Abronia are awesome and we love Abronia, but there's a lot of other awesome stuff.
1: Yeah. That, that, that whole that area live- needs help.
4: Every bit of it, and everything's so cool. I mean, like I just love cloud forest stuff. Every every part of it, from the plants to all the reptiles, and amphibians, just the entire, like it's just such a niche climate. It, the cloud forest sort of with, with with global warming and all that stuff. You know, like I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't believe in that, but I mean, just look at what's going on um you know it's like those are the first habitats to fall and, and there are animals that are found in cloud forests that are just not found anywhere else and cannot survive any anything else other than those kind of cooler high elevation conditions and when they get bulldozed for agricultural development and then you know illegal collectors or whatever come in and, and take the rest of them you know those those areas are just gone forever and you're never going to get them back more regulations and more stuff regarding you know, uh, legal scientific collection of these animals is getting harder and harder for legitimate people to do work with these animals. And then a lot of these areas are too dangerous for anybody to really go in, but the locals to do anything, even then some of these areas are too dangerous for the locals to go in. Um, And it's just, these are areas that are just going to be gone. And and we're never, you know, there are going to be species that are going to be extinct that we never even knew existed. And um, so... Uh, Cloud Forest Alliance is going to kind of incorporate everything and get people in that are like not just uh, passionate about a brownie or passionate about the palm vipers that live there, but are into the plants and into the birds and into the mammals and everything else. And that's the kind of the whole point of Cloud Forest Alliance is getting partners that are Capable and qualified in those areas, and actually do something more than just keep these animals in in captivity. Which there's a there's a part of that that's important, but it's not the end all be all. Um.
1: Ow! I can't even hear myself.
4: Was was, was 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 that was that like some music that you are putting down for my rant, like some epic, like passionate circus music for the rant?
2: Well, that's the closing credits of the Oscars.
4: Nice, nice, very good.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or as I Dave would, Chappelle would say, wrap it up.
4: <laughs> yep. All right. Well, I am done. I am done with that. Um, I'm gonna go eat my barbecue chicken sandwich. Um, no thank you guys for having me on to yap for a little bit um hopefully i didn't disappoint everybody that i probably disappointed like i'll hear when i get off the phone hey you didn't say this that or the other but uh, that's what that's why there's other people on the team that uh are there to fill in the gaps when i don't say something right
2: it's all good brother we love it we're glad you all came right. on we'll see you next. all right month.
4: guys all right Thanks. enjoy your guys interviews
1: all right man bye all right see ya later right. bye my
2: eardrums. Was it too loud? <laughs> I tried to too make loud. it I tried to make it like fade in and it just went too loud. Boom. <laughs> oh, so man. we
1: we could sit here and introduce Wyman and everything, but if they if they don't know who he is already, then what Yeah, do
2: that care? exactly. If, if if you haven't listened to any number of herpetological podcasts and or interviews and the one might
1: say Doc Wyman. <laughs>
2: The one, the only, Doctor Travis Wyman.
1: Well, thank you, gentlemen. How were babies made?
2: (laughs) Do I need a Do I need a partner to make one? (laughs) So
3: maybe wood
2: storks or like are we sandhill cranes? I mean, definitely, definitely sandhill cranes and cabbage and cabbage, cabbage. Yes. Yeah. Patches of cat. Hey,
1: Billy's here too. Um, yeah, so this was kind of short notice. Like we're, as we said at the beginning, we're sort of planning an episode about this RAPS organization, which you are a part of. Um, if you want to touch on it a little bit, feel free. If you want to spare it all for whenever we make that episode happen within the next, hopefully, two to three weeks.
0: I mean, I can... Or even touch on it quick but yeah you know yeah. it's so raps is the uh world reptile amphibian preservation society that myself pia uh, steve tillis justin julander zach loafman uh, paul bertolini or paul Ber- getting confused cody <laughs> 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 paul Bertone. Paul. We'll just call it Paul. Um, we're all involved in. it's. Uh, we're partnered up with, you know, Pia and Cody through RPI, and we're working on, you know, sort of a, a marriage between the academic and the hobby side, or the intellectual and the hobby side, um, kind of bring it together a little bit of the, you know, the zoo side and the hobby side, uh, looking at species level preservation and how to bring about better, you know, husbandry keeping Mm -hmm. information spread through the hobby than just a lot of the ridiculousness that goes on in places. Awesome.
1: Sort of funneling things into one place so that everyone can keep track of it kind of a thing.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, so it'll sort of be like an umbrella and yep. RPI will be under it, a brony will be under it or affiliated with it in mm-hmm. those ways. And you know, try to work that way, um, hopefully get up to a size where we can offer, you know, small grants to people who are working on projects or collaborations with other groups that are working preservation projects and help, you know, help bring the community together more. Cause you know, mm-hmm. you got kind of like the snake guys and the frog guys and the turtle guys. And right. you know a lot of like the turtle guys, they've really got their acts together, and a lot of this stuff. And
1: oh, there's so few of them. Yeah.
0: yeah, but outside of the you know outside of the turtle groups, most reptile people don't know about the stuff that they do, and they do some really solid work. So you know, bringing groups together like that, getting those ideas that the turtle guys use to promote their preservation, their conservation stuff and bringing it to, you know, the lizard group, the snake group, or, you know, grouping it together. You know, gopher tortoises obviously share habitat with indigo snakes. So if you can bring two groups together like that, and they're working together, you can have twice the impact.
1: It's a no-brainer. Yeah. I am anxious to dive into that more whenever we make that happen. Um, But... So we had pl- talked about possibly doing it this week, but we have Jake coming back this week. So we're going to, it's going to be the three of us. Uh, but the week after that, maybe we can make something happen. I'll talk to Paul and see if we can orchestrate and get at least three of you in one place. Um, which is kind of the sweet spot. Cause I feel like the moment you add, the more people you add, the less gets covered. So, right. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. And we decided we, we wanted to do, a THP, or we're going to do a Snakes and Stogies because of photos and videos and stuff?
1: I don't know. We can... Okay. We okay. can figure that out. Sure. Um, but Wyman is always the one we go to when we have really stupid questions.
2: I, I People don't or realize this. He,
1: he answers them of his own volition. He'll That's to what I was
2: going to say. And then... I legit look forward to hearing... What I like to call the Wyman recap, because <laughs> it takes it takes any kind of like rhetorical questions we may have or any kind of theories or hypothesis, hypotheses that we have. And then he'll send us links to the journals and then give us a summarized version or an abstract, if you will, about what we were talking about and then expand upon it. And I love it. we have it like on I cue. Like We'll it. say
1: in an episode. Maybe I'm sure I'm sure Doc Wyman will send us something about it, and then like like clockwork, a few days later, it's like, oh yeah, here's this. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah.
0: And and I apologize, I've been somewhat slacking on that because I usually <laughs> listen at work. And about two months ago, they did an update to our system, and they completely borked YouTube. Oh, um, that's. But stinks. it's back now, so I I think I have to go all the way back to like episode 74 475 and start listening from there. So, you'll probably get bombarded by me in the next
2: episode with just a complete cascade of that episode. That episode where you were talking about X, Y, and Z that we forgot about. Yeah,
1: we probably don't. I I literally (laughs) probably won't even remember. I'm not going to lie.
2: Right, right.
1: I'll probably have an inkling because a lot of stuff we talk about, we've we've talked about at one point or another, you know, but yeah, so he just listens to us while he makes clones of wooly mammoths and t-rexes yep that's exactly what i'm doing that's just that's what i like to think you do man (laughs) yeah it's like the maybe the sexy version you know wyman's in a lab cloning kurt cobain and hendrix and all those great that were lost that we somehow have a oh you know what it was so okay Uh, We were driving to my father-in-law's yesterday and for some reason my child was rattling off facts about presidents and we talked about George Washington. Apparently his dentures that he wore are preserved somewhere and I was like we should totally get the DNA off those and bring back George Washington.
0: I I don't know that the DNA from Washington's saliva Will have been maintained over the time frame that we're talking about, simply because it's Maybe. probably not stored in the best conditions for that. Not in a to mention box
2: somewhere, I'm pretty okay. sure the teeth he had were not his.
1: They were not his, but yes. I'm saying there was probably some blood or so because I saw the picture of it. They were pretty medieval looking. I was like, surely there's some some blood or something. I mean, there could be.
3: Yeah, and I yeah, yeah
1: and I agree with Clayton. He said if Kurt Cobain came back, he would instantly find himself with Courtney Love shotgun. In her hands, (laughs) I am fully on board with that conspiracy theory, man. Like Courtney Love, she's crazy enough to do it, dude. I don't know about y'all, but it seems completely plausible. (laughs) Uh, So, Phil has some questions. I hope I definitely have some, and we shall. I was gonna
2: say, first, let's congratulations on your very unique Ball Python.
0: I mean, I'm not being sarcastic. Mean, no, I don't. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm you're not special ball. Your fancy no, ball. It, it's either. somewhat. No, no. I, this, no,
2: no and This I, usually
0: I, happens a couple of times every season. You know. Right,
2: but but I'll tell you, like someone such as yourself who legitimately knows what's going on under the skin, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. How many people breed? Let's just use ball pythons because we're on the topic, and and don't know that that's what happened. You know what I mean, or they, or maybe they haven't put two and two together per se. I, I'm an idiot. Enlighten me, please, because I was trying to read your uh, your caption that you put on Facebook.
1: There's a lot of big words.
2: And, well, not even a lot of big words, but I, I I grasped the concept of it, and I thought that it's fascinating onto itself. Heteroallelic. So I don't wanna, I don't know if you want to give like a like a synopsis. Almost you could probably just read your Facebook post for all I know, but I thought it was super interesting. Let I me mean, yeah, I can give a synopsis.
0: So, I'm. Um, my this is Maybe my second clutch know? and it was just bad to begin with uh, six eggs three of them were slugs one of them was veinless the other two had veins uh at about day 40 one of those two just crashed um, i dissected it open to see what was going on and there was an embryo that was basically just a head And organs, no body. Um, And then the final egg went to day 70 um, and came out and was a single gene pied, um, which, you know, just on the surface of it's like, well, that's cool. You've got, you know, you've got a pied animal. And yes, but the male that I bred it to, It's a compound heterozygote. So that's the when you have two different forms of incomplete dominant together. Mm
3: -hmm. So,
0: you know, for ball pythons, I'm looking at the jolt and the black pastel, which are in the same complex. So all of the babies would have to be either jolt or black pastel. This animal was obviously neither of those. So the only way that could happen is through a parthenogenic event, Um, and it's also female, which you see with the parthenogenics because Mm -hmm. all indications are that the YY genotype is
1: fatal across the board. So, So, like, statistically that shouldn't have hatched?
0: I mean, again, we see parthenogenic clutches pop up a few times a season. Um, Though, like Phil said, most people like, they're like, I don't know how I got this. Well, this is how you get those kinds of things. And there have been cases where I hop in and I explain it and people are like, oh, cool. I didn't know there have been places where I've hopped in and explained it. And people have been like, listen, you need to shut up because you don't know what you're talking about, which is always entertaining.
1: well, wait doctor, for people who don't know what is. What are you a doctor of, and what is your what is your day job?
0: I hold a doctorate in microbiology and molecular genomics, and my day job is doing you know genomics, whole genome sequencing,
1: <laughs> molecular. And being sequencing told are, you have no idea what you're talking about, but no I'll idea, on guys.
2: <laughs> Look, man, um, I got I got a Punnett square on a cocktail napkin. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs>
3: My you know, I talk with
2: uh,
0: Warren Booth all the time, and for those of you who don't know him, Warren has studied this extensively. He's published on it in Science, Nature, PLOS, all over the place.
1: Um, the people or the snakes? The snakes. Both are very much worthy of, of science. <laughs> <Yes, no. laughs>
0: Warren has studied parthenogenesis in snakes. Um, he's, he's probably one of the leading names in parthenogenesis in snakes. Uh, he's gotten to the point where he doesn't even accept samples from people anymore when they say, hey, I think I got pathogenesis because almost universally that's been what it is. And so he just rather than have dozens of them a year, he's just like, you know, yeah, you're probably right. It's probably pathogenesis and we're not going to keep testing it because every time we test it, it shows up as that anyways.
1: So this is the ball python in question?
2: Yes, just
1: a normal low-white
0: piebald.
2: But again, nothing like the parents, right?
0: Nothing like the male parent. Um, okay. Like I said, so the male was a, hetero, a compound heteroallelic. So he should have been, the, the, the possibility would have been either jolt pied if the male proved out to be het pied or a black pastel pied. And everything in the black pastel complex, when it makes pied, is usually very high white. Mm-hmm. So one, the fact that this is a low white pied would abolish that idea, but also the very few of the jolt pieds that have been made don't look anything like this. Uh, and I've talked to a couple of people who've made them and yeah, they, they all agreed that while this is a unique looking animal, it's definitely not a jolt pied. So,
1: so the, basically the, you, you, did you see the pair? Did you see copulation?
0: I saw copulation. I saw. So basically, he just didn't get the job. Numerous locks. Then. Yeah. He, okay. I mean, something weird happened. Um, so what happens? Locks, and it was the only male that she has seen. Okay. So what
1: yeah. happens when you breed that to something else? Like that might—that's—that's. That's, I'm I'm dumb when it comes to ball pythons and morphs and things.
0: Well, genetically, this is just a normal pied. Um, okay. Now whether or not i breed it is going to be a whole other matter because warren has also seen that the few times that he has bred parthenogenic animals they generally have very bad clutches and it is also generally very bad for the animals themselves uh, i think he lost two parthenogens that he took to breeding uh one of them he got to go and it produced the clutch but like it dropped eggs like seven days post-ovulation shed most of Mm -hmm. the eggs were just crap because obviously they weren't even mature so most parthenogenic products are you know they're not really fit for breeding but
3: Mm -hmm.
0: you know if i can find somebody who just wants a nice low white pied as a pet then they'll be welcome to it
2: very cool it's funny you mentioned earlier like you were saying that most of the parthenogenic stuff, the offspring are female. Um, Wasn't, I I believe there was a, I don't know if it was two zoos in London that had Komodo, two different Komodo clutches, where all the eggs hatched out male, and I'm pretty sure they were all euthanized.
0: So it's it's different between the different species. So boas, pythons, anacondas, the boid complex, those are XY chromosome for sex. So the females are XX, and that's what you get with the parthenogenic clutches because the YY phenotype or the YY genotype has proven to be lethal. Um, In higher snakes, uh, colubrids, vipers, things like that, the sex chromosomes are different. You've got the ZW and it's the Mm -hmm. females are ZW and the males are ZZ for their genotypes. And in those, when you get a parthenogenic event, it's almost always male clutches. The males are the parthenogens. Um, lizards are ZW, so you get the same thing with lizards. You tend to generate males that are parthenogens.
2: Very cool. Yeah, there was a guy uh, local to me, <coughs> excuse me, there was a guy local to me, and when I was a, a wee lad working at Underground Reptiles retail store as a, a rat boy, um, there was a guy that came in with a, a bucket full of Brazilian rainbow babies. And he's like, Oh, my Brazilian rainbow just had babies. And I, I, I need you guys to look at them. Cause I think they're all boys. And then he's like, we're popping them. And it's like, boy, 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 boy. It was a whole, literally a five gallon bucket full of them. And then he told us that he had the girl for 13 years and she'd never seen another snake. And That's we're crazy. like, yeah. And then it was all girls. Yep, And, uh, and he, as far as we know, he gave all the babies away to friends, like just gave them away as pets to friends. So like none of them ever made it for any kind of, you know, DNA analysis or, you know, not, we never had any information on them at all. So it would have been cool to get more facts out of it. but Yeah.
0: Um, I don't know that anybody has tried to just cycle without breeding. Um Warren did have an albino ball python parthenogen and bred her, and she threw a second parthenogenic clutch. And so, yes, the parthenogenic animal then produced its own parthenogenic clutch, and those apparently were also kind of train wreck-looking animals at the end of the day when they hatched. Very few of them hatched. Wow.
1: And then Bill asked, "Could it be a sperm slash egg combo that's causing issues?"
2: In what way?
1: I don't know.
0: I'll wait for Bill to clarify.
2: Is that a uh, at home centrifuge?
0: No, that is my wife's sewing machine. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh,
2: it's fine. It's fine. It's quite all right. Quite all right.
1: And then Dom asked for Partho, is there generally a stimulus for her to throw a clutch or does it happen out of the blue?
0: It seems to happen out of the blue. Um, Warren has a theory, and I don't really want to out him on it, so I'm not going to, but his theory would be consistent with Parthenogenesis that we see in some other species. Um, But yeah, it's... To all intents and purposes, it seems to be an out-of-the-blue thing. There may be mechanisms behind it, though. And I don't know if that's something he's looking into or if it's just a novel theory that he has.
1: And Bill said Parthenotes need to continue the transperm introduction is screwing up the system, question mark.
0: No, I mean, in theory, they should be just as normally viable as any other animal. You know, They should breed like normal if they didn't have the problems that they have by being you know essentially genetically inbred to themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. So my like my main thing is like palmetto corns are a good example. Like that was found in someone's backyard.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so anomalies like those obviously they're rare but I would think because of like how I guess it could be completely random, right? But Usually I would also guessed. I would I would also assume that in a given population there would have to be enough mixing going on or inbreeding going on for something like that to pop up. I don't know if you have any insight into, you know, how or why those are so rare but they still Cuz I also thought about like the leucistic kings that that they tend to find in that one part of, you know, Southeast Asia where they continue to sort of There's a population of them where every now and then they do find leucistic kings. It's not like there's just one.
0: Yeah. Um, Usually you see mutations happen in a very localized population dependent manner. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's because the gene is in that population. And while inbreeding in snakes in the wild is not a huge thing. There's still some degree of it because those mm-hmm. populations tend to be fairly localized. Um, right. Really good example of that, Gray Bandit Kings alternative. Um, mm-hmm. Both the Annery and the Hypo are found in the Black Gap locality and nowhere else. And the Black Gap locality is it is very segregated off from the rest of those, you know, the other localities. So when it came up there, obviously, there's a finite number of snakes in that population.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And while you're probably not getting brother to sister type breedings, the ones that are breeding get the gene into the population. And so every now and then, you get two of those animals that carry the allele together and pop out the visual mutation. Um, you know, Like I said, we see that in all kinds of different populations. like. Uh, decades ago, early in the ball python game, people would talk about how, you know, there's one place where you can always find the pastels because that's just a little subset of the population Mm -hmm. where the pastel gene has occurred and so it carries through. There's yellow belly populations. There's one place where they would always find the lavenders. So it tends to be just grouped in a population basis like that. Because once the mutation gets into the population then it tends to stick around there to some extent, just traveling through because of the breedings.
1: I got you. Like they are, they are mixing. It's just because it's a larger bowl yeah. you know, where they're not, I got you. Uh, I just like, you see, you see stuff like that. And, you know, there was some pictures not that long ago, like an albino, you know, black racer and those random albinos pop up and, and stuff. It's like, we, if we haven't seen that before, especially if it's a species that we come across regularly or something that's even in the hobby, it's like, how long has that been floating around for that to happen?
0: Um, I mean, it, it depends, again, on the size of the population. So a smaller population, you're going to see it happening more yeah. often. A larger population, it's going to become less and less likely to spin up, at least in terms of the, like a recessive and uh, an incomplete dominant or dominant. You'll see it at a higher frequency.
2: Very cool. Yeah. It goes back to uh, that whole, we were talking about, you know, piebald deer, you know, piebald whitetail. Mm -hmm. When Cox was chiming in and, and, you, know, you see, like, particular herds on particular farms where you know one out of 50 pops out pied. And then you have other groups where damn near the whole herd's pied. And it just goes to that, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm going to say, you know, island group or isolated group, just like those Black Gap uh, Alterna.
0: Yeah, localized populations. Localized yeah, yeah. populations. The piebald deer, like, when you see the, the large populations of them, the largest population of piebald deer is on a military base, and they're all trapped inside of that base perimeter. So obviously, you're basically just forcing inbreeding there. Right, right. When you see them out in the wild, and they tend to be less occurring, that's because you're getting a lot more admixture between normal deer that don't carry the piebald gene with them.
2: Very interesting. It's funny, because there's actually a, a, a few individuals by me. One of the first ever, if not the first ever leucistic cottonmouths was found in the canal system 10 minutes from my house. And I know a lot of guys that have caught uh, several normal adults and just tried forcing the inbreed to try and get some kind of genetics out of it, and no one's been successful in that That group of animals. So who the hell knows if it was just a fluke or what, you know?
0: Yeah, and it could be a fluke. It could be a first-generation yeah. a first generation occurrence type of thing. Although right. I, there have been a couple of different – Leukistic cotton mouths that have popped up over the years. So yeah, yeah, it seems like there's probably a small population of them that's floating around there, and they're just very infrequently coming together.
3: Right, right.
1: Super. So that cool. kind of that kind of ties into the other question I had is like when we talked about piebald deer. Are so with the pie thing in those deer if you looked at it as far as the mutation itself, is it going to be is it going to physically appear to be the same as if it were in like a snake? So like are, is, a, is a pied in the deer and a pied in a ball python really the same same uh, mutation? Or are we just calling them that because they look the same? Like that's my thing. Like when you have anery corns and then anory, uh boas. Bo- boas. Good, yeah, right there.
0: So the answer to is that it, is maybe. Okay, <laughs> um, that's
1: something I've always I've always I could never wrap my head around either. Is like how do we know that it's actually anery because we call something else that looks like it anery? Right. It-
0: and in some cases, it's just similar phenotype but different genotype. In some cases, it's the same genotype causing the same phenotype or the same gene, I should say, causing the same phenotype. So piebaldism. There are, depending on your model organism, so like mice, rats, dogs, bovids, horses, things like that, that we know, there are three to six genes that consistently produce a piebald mutation. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about piebald deer, there are actually three different phenotypes of piebaldism in deer. So there are probably three different genotypes, and if you look at those you know on the genetic level, they're going to trace to three different genes. Um, in what we see in pythons, you're probably going to see the same thing. Um, you know, One of the genotypes will probably correspond to the same gene that we see in ball pythons. One will be the same gene that we see in like burns or retics or something. Um, You know, when you look at the phenotypes of piebaldism that we see in the hobby, like for retics and berms, we have what's basically ventral dorsal piebaldism. So it starts on the belly and just comes straight up. With ball pythons, it's sort of both ventral dorsal and distal proximal. So it starts on the belly, but towards the tail and moves towards the head. So the piebaldism phenotype is differently in piebald ball pythons than it is in piebald Burmese pythons. So if you made, if you took a piebald berm and a piebald ball and bred them together, my suspicion is that you would get normal looking berm balls that were double het for two different kinds of piebaldism. The same way if you take two of the incompatible axantics and ball
1: pythons and breed them together.
2: Very interesting.
1: It's just—it's such a hard question to like explain to where it makes sense. Like albinism is a good example. So like there's albino people. There's albino rabbits. Like there's albino snakes. We have albinism across
0: the board, and that's because the gene for melanin. You know, almost every organism, even going down to like some bacterial and fungal species have melanin because melanin is a fantastic pigment for protection against the ultraviolet rays of the sun. Mm
3: -hmm. So
0: we all have a common ancestor along the evolutionary path that gave us the melanin gene. So any, we all carry the melanin gene. So any mutation that disrupts that melanin gene gives you an albino phenotype. Now, I've talked about it in the past. There's a whole pathway on how to make melanin. It's not just one gene. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like the very first gene in that pathway is for tyrosinase. So when we talk about Mm a melanism, we're talking about tyrosinase negative mutations, it's a mutation that destroys that tyrosinase gene. Because if you break that gene, you can't even start the whole pathway to make melanin.
1: It's the gateway.
0: Right. It's the gateway. And knowing it's the gateway and knowing that all organisms, you know, almost all organisms out there have got melanin in them. Then you can understand if I break that tyrosinase gene in a human or a snake or a rabbit, they're all going to end up the same because that that gateway gene is a gateway gene for all three of those organisms because they all have this same melanin pathway in them. And that's why you can take an albino berm and breed it to an albino ball and get albino berm balls because the gene is the same gene. It's that tyrosinase gene. Okay. Now it may not be broken the same way in both of them, mm-hmm. but both of them are still broken. So you're getting two broken, you know, you're getting two broken genes and it doesn't work the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if I break all of the bolts on the right side of my, driver's start of my car, my front car my front tire. And if I shatter the rim on the left side, it's two different damages to the wheel. But the result is still that my car doesn't drive. Okay. <laughs> so they're two different mutations, but right. they're still mutations of the same critical gene.
1: And that's well that's after our episode with Dusty Roads. You know, I had asked him about the hypo versus albino Baird's thing because in the book he talked about how it's just a it's a T plus albino, which I asked you about, and you said that those more like using them interchangeably was acceptable. Is that am I well, recounting that correctly? I mean,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember it like that, and it goes back just going back to cottonmouths real quick. Like, there's the whole hypo cottonmouth, which is proven out it's it's not a hypo it's just t negative so you know that gets into uh what's the word i'm looking for like community nomenclature
0: yeah and that's that's the thing with the the birds is you know is it hypo or is it albino um you'd have to get a full genotype to know for sure my suspicion is that it's a type of hypo um But everything in the hobby that we call, you know, caramel albino, lavender albino, you know, anything that isn't a true T-negative albino, but we still call some kind of albino, technically, those are all different types of hypomelanism. Because it's, what it is, is it's damage to a different gene in that melanin synthesis pathway so, they're producing some melanin. They're just not producing the full amount of melanin. And that's what hypo means. Hypo means less than. So, mm-hmm. it's less than the normal amount of melanin. So, a caramel albino ball python isn't really a caramel, it's a hypomelanistic type. But, you know, so is a lavender, so is a candy, so is a banana, so is an ultramel. So, we have the different names for them to differentiate. What they are rather than, you know, hypotype one, hypotype two, hypotype three, hypotype four, because then people really wouldn't understand.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then and and it make makes sense to. Hypo
0: is more hypopigmented than truly hypomelanistic.
2: Right. And that makes sense as to why your quote unquote hypo has definitive patterns and a darker hue opposed to a straight up albino which is just going to be right. two base colors and minimal pattern
1: but that's because that that hypo still has some melanin right it's just not it's not completely gone like it would be in like a t negative correct
0: yeah okay it's well right. i mean it's not necessarily gone it's just it's suppressed it's suppressed or so with melanin you can have basically three different types of dysfunction. You can have dysfunction of production, which is the, you know, in the chain of the pathway, Mm -hmm. you can have dysfunction of distribution. So it's made fine. It just doesn't get sent out to where it's supposed to go. And then you have dysfunction of deposition where it's made fine. It's sent out fine, but then it doesn't stick where it's supposed to stick. So if you look at distribution and deposition dysfunctions. (laughs) um, Those can also be your T plus type mutations or your hypotype mutations because the melon it's being produced. It's just not sticking around the way it should. So there's less melanin physically present in your animals.
1: And then Clayton had a question. Are there critical genes that contribute to piebald and does mutation of color mean a mutation of melanin?
0: Um, I don't know. There are specific genes that give rise to piebald phenotypes. Um, So if you, I'm not going to say this is an absolute, but like, if I were trying to find out which gene was responsible for piebaldism in pythons, I would look at like six specific genes first before I started looking across the whole genome for just something random. Yeah. So I mean, they're. I don't know that they're. When we say critical in the genomics world, that means a gene that if you delete it, the animal dies. It's a critical gene. It's a necessary
1: survival. Critical,
0: right. Not, yeah. So. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking he just means critical to the piebald mutation. And yeah, there are a handful of genes that give rise to that. So yeah, that would be what I would look at. Um, as far as are all pigment mutations, melanin mutations, no, because snakes have got more than one type of pigmentation to them. They have melanin and they also have um, xanthin or erythrin, which fundamentally are both the same thing at their starting point. It's just how they're processed that causes them to split up into either the red pathway or the yellow pathway. So you have those as other you know, pigments. Um, and then you also have, they are true pigment cells, but they contribute to pigmentation of an animal, uh, iridophores. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a pigment. It's a, a guanidine crystal structure. And so the way those crystals are laid down in thick or thin layers, and the angles that they're laid out, they basically act as prisms. So they can Mm -hmm. absorb or deflect light at certain wavelengths and give rise to different colors.
2: And then I'm assuming that plays a key factor in the iridescence that we see in a lot of species.
0: It can be in the iridescence, but it's also in like your non-standard type colors that you, you know, green, you don't you don't look at green and think, well, yes, melanin is going to give me green. Right, right. is going to give me green. It's it's the way those crystal structures lay down. They bend the light that comes in and gets reflected back out, so that it's actually blue shifted, and then right. it's the blue shifted against a yellow layer background. So you're getting a blue and yellow together to make it yeah. look
1: green. B- Botswana Paul did a really good article on skin color and and like that very thing um, in the, not the latest issue, but the issue before last, I believe.
2: So it was May, no, right right? yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. he also did yeah. one on Partho, <laughs> and I'm curious. I'll have to ask Warren to, to give that a look and see what he thinks. Um, but Botswana Paul, man, he freaking kills it. So. Yeah. It's my boy. My boy in Botswana.
2: Super fascinating stuff, man.
1: And then, it's a lot of questions tonight. I like it. Yeah, it's good. Um, mutant I'm geckos having trouble keeping
0: up with the, the YouTube <laughs> questions
1: and you guys to the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, mutant geckos asked. And I'll just repeat the question so people listening after the fact can understand what we're getting into. Uh, they said, "In leopard geckos, we have three snows. The max snow is incomplete dominant, and the tug and gem snow are dominant. Max creates supers. Tugs and gem gems." Don't when bred to each other, but when bred to max, they do. Why does that happen? Would that just mean that the super is just dominant.
0: I'm I'm not super sure because I think there's probably more to this than what I'm reading. You know, in I'm also not super familiar with leopard genetics terminology because a snow to me is an albino anery mm-hmm. compound. Um, oh,
1: no, but they say the, so Mac's the Mac not is incomplete okay, so dominant. Mac
0: is incomplete dominant. Tug and Jim are not. They're simple dominant. When you breed Tug and Jim to each other, you don't get a super, but when you breed a Mac to a Tug, you get a super. <clears throat> That would imply that all, if I'm understanding it, that would imply that all three of these genes are alleles of one another. So what you're probably seeing is something along the lines of like the, uh, leucistic ball pythons where, you know, like a butter and a lesser are all white, but when you breed them to something like a, a special you get a not all white type of thing. Um, Obviously it's not a perfect analogy because a lesser, a lesser by itself isn't an all white.
2: Right. But we get the, we get what you're trying to say. Yeah. It,
0: it, It, you know, the same general thing. You've got, you've got alleles that are stronger and alleles that are weaker. So the tug and the gem would be the stronger alleles and the Mac would be the weaker allele. So the Mac is going to behave They're They're both, they're all really incomplete dominant to an extent, Mm -hmm. but the phenotype is so extreme in the tug in the gem that it looks the same in the homozygous. It does in the heterozygous. It's different in the Mac because it's less extreme in the single gene versus the double gene form.
2: Yeah.
1: What's the difference between like, when you have blue-eyed and black-eyed leucistic? What is there a major difference there? What's the...
0: Um, it... It has to do... So the leukism genes are a pigment disruption
1: okay.
0: type mutation. Um, the black and blue are different types of pigment disruption. Both of them are affecting how like I said, melanin melanin but all pigments are being distributed. And the way, melanin is critical for eye formation. It's laid down in a different manner than how it's distributed through the body. Mm -hmm. So the mutations in the blue eye group are giving a normal layer of melanin at the basal membrane of the eyes during formation. So you get that blue structure where the first layer of melanin pigmentation causes the you know, the eyes to form and they form blue because the rest of the pigment doesn't come in to them properly. With the black ones, the melanin layer is distributed atypically. It still is distributed properly for eye formation, but then it also just kind of overloads the pigmentation of the eye. Yeah such that you sure. get the black, you know, there's, there's melon, there's melon deposition into the eye in an atypic manner that gives you the black you know, coloration base.
1: Well, that makes me wonder too, is that going to be something similar as like when you see every now and then you see gargoyle geckos with really dark eyes. I think they phantoms is what they, I think they call them. I don't know if there's anything actually to it, but you do get some gargoyles that have just those just dark black marble eyes.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure that has something to do with the eclipse and the leopards too.
0: Uh, yeah, it's probably functional in the eclipse of the leopards. Although I don't know about the gargs, if they're just dealing with like dark gargs, what you could be looking at is a uh, like a melanization type of thing. Right. So the same thing we see in like you know black pastel or mahogany ball pythons, where you're just upping the expression of melanin in the animals, and it's across the whole body. And part of that is also just increased melanin right deposition in yeah
2: and if you if you if you were to obviously we're not going to do this because it'd be cruel but if you were to blast that eyeball with light so that we could physically see it you would still see the the patterning and the colors and the 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 the, the, the physical pigmentation of the eye but because it's so dark it almost gives the appearance of just being monocolored dark black whatever right yeah very cool. Yeah, the whole leucistic yeah. thing always got me. Like, it, in terms of just no pattern and no, for lack of a better no word, no color. Like, but yet you still have particular melanin in the eye or the heat pits if it has them or what have you. You know, and then the random scalation that's just like a random black dot, a random black, brown dot. You know what it is. that, that always was fascinating.
1: Yeah, so this is, like, a good example. So Garg's typically have this really bright colored eye. Like, that's one of the things I like about them the most is, like, those eyes really stand out. But then you get these ones with the darker black
2: eyes. Which is interesting because those, obviously, the first two geckos you showed, the one with the lighter eyes has a darker overall color. Well, they they
1: fire up and down, so that one could just be...
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Like that one, the one on the on the left there doesn't look fired up. The one on the right definitely does.
3: Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting.
2: Billy Hum wants to know, how do polygenic traits work from a genetic standpoint?
1: Pretty broad question, isn't it? I mean, it is a broad
0: question, but, you know... We can deal with broad questions. Broad questions are good. Um, I
1: apologize.
0: feel like it's, it's pretty
1: late at night to be pushing you with these, these questions.
0: <laughs> you know, I, this is like how my brain works all the time. Um, have you ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind?
2: I did, but a very long time ago. Okay, well, There's a well, R- Russell Crowe, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: My my mother saw it and she told me, she's like, Oh, I saw this movie and it reminds me of you. And at the time I was horribly offended. Cause like, you know, he's a paranoid <laughs> schizophrenic. And I'm right. like, thanks mom. I really appreciate this. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then I saw the movie and like, one like they show him whenever, like he looks out a window and he sees guys playing football and like, he, he like the equations for how the ball was moving and how gravity is affecting it and how the players are moving everything, all of that. It's like what's running through his mind. And that's what my mother was getting at because I mean, that's kind of how I work is I just kind of see the world in terms of genes and genetics. And
1: I mean, you'd rather that than what's eating go grape.
3: So yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so. Early, late, it doesn't matter. My brain just always thinks in terms of genomics. (laughs) Um, No, I'm not going to skip your question, Billy. So the way polygenetics works, it means you've got multiple genes plugging together to give rise to a phenotype. So um, tigers and carpet pythons is a really good example. There are very obviously multiple genes that help generate that striped dorsal patterning. Some of them are very strong and very probably dominant or incomplete dominant in their expression. Some of them are not as strong or are recessive if you only have one or two of those genes, you get animals that are just partially striped, or not very prominently striped. The ones that have multiples of those genes have really strong, bold, dominant, full-length stripes. Um, So if we just randomly say that there are like six genes that contribute to it, and you need to have three of them is dominant or incomplete dominant and the other three are recessive if you have homozygous for all six you're going to have a perfect tiger animal if you have homo or heterozygous for the dominance but all heterozygous for the recessives you're not going to have a super clean super striped looking tiger you're going to have a tiger that's got you know two thirds of its length and then the rest of it's broken up or the, the back isn't going to be as tightly striped or as prominent as you would see when it's a full combination of all six genes.
2: That's awesome. That's fascinating. That, that actually explains a lot. Like you, like you said, using the tiger, like it, that's a great animal to, because most of us who are into like the Morelia world or just into morphs and stuff like you visually can see what you just articulated.
0: Yeah,
2: I think I think that's that was a great choice to use,
0: and I mean it's 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 one of the ones that's really easy to see in the hobby is right the the tiger, um, but you can see it in other species. I mean it's all it's it's what you do when you do selective breeding. I mean anything that you do where you're selectively breeding, you're choosing for a group of genes that contribute to a trait. So. I mean, jungle carpets are the same way, you know, the wild jungle carpets. They're not yellow and black,
3: right? It's just, right. The way it is.
0: there are a subset of genes that contribute to that really bright yellow and those really dark blacks. And you need to get all of them together to get that jet black with highlighter, yellow combination. If you don't have all of those genes in there together, then you've just got muddy looking jungles. Now, right. those, mud, you know, we call them muddy looking jungles. What it is, is you have a wild type jungle, not a selectively bred jungle.
2: Yeah, or, or even more so a, a wild type from a particular locality based phenotype.
3: Right.
2: Yeah, like we, uh, Casey and us, Casey and I were just, or Billy and, and Justin too, we were just talking about somebody was showing off some uh, Southern Queensland jungles and they are straight up look like caramel, like the caramel morph. And it's like, no, that's just how they came out. That's just how they look. And maybe that's indicative of a small island population that happens to have a caramel-like gene. But our jungles don't look like anything on that whole coast. (laughs) So.
1: Well, that's what I was explaining to Jake, because Jake was over the other day, and he saw the Loma Alta bears, And he was like, man, those are super nice, and He's like, that's what they look like in the wild. And I was like, not like, yes and no. Like, there are some that are really nice looking, but like, these are selectively bred to be like, like the jungles. Like, this is the best of the best in terms of like line breeding. And like, so yeah, they're Loma Altas, but if you went to Loma Alta, I highly doubt you'd find some that were that good looking. Like, they'd still look good, but.
0: it's, it's almost always, you know, whenever you, you're breeding for anything, you know, again, I'll turn as another good subset of, uh, when you were talking with, I think it was when you were talking with Dusty,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, and he was talking about the different gaps, or maybe it was with, uh, Brian, he was talking about the different localities and how, like, if you actually went out to those localities and caught the animals out there and then compared like the snake that you just caught that night to the population of gaps or Mm -hmm. Sanderson's or whatever, the one that you just pulled out of the wild is not going to look anything like these locality ones that you have been breeding for years and years and years in captivity because you've been doing inadvertently selective breeding for Specific traits for each locality in captivity. So you've purged out some of the. And
1: then Marcus. Piped up about uh, Lampropeltis nigrita, with the golden red specks under the belly. Would that just be more or less the genes, as
2: well?
0: Um. I don't know of anybody that has worked at it, but I'm sure that yeah, if you bred. For negritas that had more red than yellow or more yellow than red, you could eventually isolate it down to getting an animal that was a solid red belly or a solid yellow belly. It would be the same type of thing. You're just you're selecting for the genes or the alleles that express more one way or more the other way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting too. It just uh, Since we're talking West Texas, like I just got those subox for my girlfriend and i and they're supposed to be davis county locality and justin and and rob stone and a couple other cats have told me that they are they look like davis County locality except the guy i got them from told me that they're supposed to be head for silver which according to rob is not from anywhere anywhere, near davis county
1: it's not a not a gym related to any of the davis county stuff
2: right so either the person that i got them from was incorrect or uh, they've totally been mudded, if you will, and yeah. just happen to retain the Davis look. So, yeah. I mean, either still, so. we love them, but we'll see what happens in a couple years.
1: That's when the lines get blurred. When
2: you get line's the look blurred
0: happens. All right. Can I jump
2: back to a Partho question?
0: You can jump back to a Partho question.
2: So, we'll allow it. <laughs> the um, one of my favorite lizards, the uh, um from Costa Rica, the night lizards or, or T. Rex lizards, if you want to call them that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the particular Costa Rican locality that is entirely female in the wild, and when they do produce offspring, it's partho and supposedly they're exact clones of mom. And it usually has a litter of you know f- two to five babies, and they're exact DNA clones of mom.
0: Are they exact is, DNA clones or are they that's, half clones?
2: That's what I was going to ask, because there's no males in the wild. Either they've been extirpated or whatever.
0: So they're probably half clones. Um, now, depending on how long the population has been producing at a parthenogenic level, they're essentially they're essentially full clones simply because all of the females are all copies of each other and they all have the same genome. So it's just getting repeated over and over and over again. Right. Um, and we see that with like some of the parthenogenic whiptails. You know, okay. Those are somewhat stable populations and the females continue to make copies of themselves. And it's not just this random, like it is with, you know, the ball pythons or the Chihuahua geckos when they pop them out. It's not just this random occurrence where it is a true spontaneous parthenogenic event where it's a true parthenogenic population. Um, And they they tend to then be all just, you know, genetic clones of one another. Um, But even in those situations, you can get genetic mixing like, morning geckos, and this is I was talking about with Bill about this in chat. we see this. Um, morning geckos are thought of as a pure parthenogenic all-female species, but they do randomly produce males, and in those males they do get some genetic shuffling. So the males then can breed with females to give a boost to genetic diversity in the population mm-hmm. if it's necessary. Um, And most of the studying around this has been done in things like daphnia and aphids. So how well it applies to reptiles is somewhat in debate, but it's still fairly consistent with what we see is, you know, when you have a static genetic population, if, you know, a disease breaks out. Then everybody's going to be susceptible to it. You know, this is why we see, you know, problems with bananas and all the monoculture that we have in our farming type of stuff. You know, they're all the same thing. So a fungus breaks out, and now entire banana fields all fall over dead because they're all the same plants Some none of them are resistant.
3: You
0: know, if an outbreak of some disease starts ripping through a population and they're all genetically identical, then they're all going to be susceptible to it. But if you have the ability to produce these random males that can shuffle up your genetics, you have the possibility then of creating offspring that are somewhat genetically diverse and may hopefully have that resistance to the disease or to the you know, changing climate environment or whatever. And then when things stabilize back down, that you know infrequent male popping up just kind of, you know, sort of fades into the woodwork, it's still there, but the females just continue to produce and produce, and you get that stable then parthenogenic population again. Uh,
2: has there been any study, whether it be with the aphids or the morning or whatever, where you had a random male occurrence, the male copulated with one or more partners, and then those offspring, was there a, an abundance of males produced from that or no?
0: Um, I don't know about an abundance of males. In some situations, the males, you know, a offering, surplus. you know, it's a 50-50 type of thing, the way you would normally expect with a male-female breeding. In some situations, the males donate, you know, shuffle genetic packaging, but the females still produce all females out of the clutch, which then go on to produce parthenogenically, but you know, right? You know, there's, yeah, there's, there's, genetic payloads. So, right, you know, you end up with a dozen different females that are parthenogenic and continue to reduce pathogenically but they're all genetically distinct from one another. So, hopefully, you know, one of those six then is resistant to whatever the change in the population stressor is.
2: Very cool, very cool.
1: So, mutant geckos had a question that also sort of ties into what my next question was going to be. And they said, I hatched out a perfect stripe on a uh, hardwick eye. So the Indian leopard geckos, Mm -hmm. hardwicky, they always hatch out banded, no line breeding, just a random mutation. Will this be an easy thing to line breed now? Or can a perfect stripe just happen on one time only and never again, which ties into my question of, if I recall, I remember hearing about corns that they would, maybe it wasn't corns, maybe it was some kind of King, but they would, they would hatch out, with stripes, but they weren't from striped snakes. It was like some sort of temperature, uh, I guess, malfunction or something where the genes, for whatever reason, it changed things. Yeah. And so my question with that is, if it's there, but it, how, how can it be there but not be inheritable?
0: Okay. Um, well to, let me first answer in the specifics of what Mutant Gecko asked, and then I'll take it more broadly to what you're asking. So with the Heart, we'll eat, um I would say the first thing you have to do is breed them out. You know, If you've got these perfectly striped animals, breed them out. If you breed them out to something unrelated, and they all go bandits, and then you breed those back together, and you produce stripes, then you're probably looking at something genetic. You know, Whether it's polygenetic or Mendelian, will show up depending on how, you know, ratios pop out backwards and stuff. So that's kind of a, you'll have to, you have to test it to prove it type of thing. Um, You know, it could just be the fact that, yeah, you had a handful of these random genes and you just managed to perfectly pair up two right animals to bring them together, or it could be a spontaneous thing. Or it could be then going into Justin's question of, you know, a temperature dependent, um phenotypic alteration which you know it's not really a mutation because you haven't changed the dna um and the best way to think of that uh let me come up with a good analogy here. um
2: i mean, i I, I imagine if, if let's say it was temperature just to say it was temperature that would it be something almost like fetal alcohol syndrome where like something during gestation caused a birth defect for lack of a better word i.e it made stripes
0: kind of yeah okay Um, it's it's not the greatest analogy but we'll roll with it you know we'll bring bring snakes and bakes together here Cool. Um, cool dna is your recipe so if i grab my recipe book and i pull it down and i open it up and i follow that recipe i I should get the same thing every single time. Now, if I write out my recipe and I put it down and it works perfectly for me, and I stick it in my oven and i pop my cookies after eight minutes and everything's perfect. And then I go to my parents' house and I follow the exact same recipe and I pop it in their oven and I pull it out after eight minutes and I've got little charcoal briquettes because their oven isn't calibrated the same as my oven. So... I followed the recipe exactly the same way. So the DNA was all the same way, but it was an outside influence. It was that, you know, the fact that the ovens were working differently that caused the outcome to be different. So, you know, if you think about it in a more physiological manner, when you bump up the temperature on cells, they tend to move a little bit faster. And so some of the, processes are going to go faster, which means like, if you have two genetic pathways that are happening and they basically act as checkpoints for one another, and if one of them is slightly temperature dependent, so if you bump the temperature up, it happens faster than the second one, then where they would normally intersect to happen and cause the normal thing to happen, if this one blows past before this one can okay. come and intersect it, then they don't stop each other where they're supposed to. They you know they trip over each other much yeah. later and so your phenotype gets changed.
3: They're not okay. in the
1: sync.
0: Right. You lose the synchronization on it.
2: Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah that's awesome. Yeah but almost uh, just to get even just to dumb it down even more going back to baking like if I set the oven for 350 it's still it's still gonna have if my mom's oven gets to 350 faster than my oven, that would be an indifference. A it was still cooking at 350 for exactly at the same amount of time, but because my mom's oven got faster, heated up faster than mine, it caused a reaction.
0: Right. Or, you okay. know, if the seal on your oven isn't as good, you know, they're both at 350, but your yours has to keep cycling more and kicking on more frequently. Yeah. which is actually causing little spikes that are higher than 350 to give that even 350, it's going to cause differences.
2: Yeah. Which would, you could compare that to an incubator where you have, you know, uh, your thermostat is not set appropriately. And instead of it fluctuating fractions of a degree or a whole degree, it's fluctuating three to four degrees before it gets back up to temp or lower, yeah. uh, lower step temp. Yeah. Like the
0: drop and then the spike yeah. and then the drop versus doing, you know,
2: correct. something. Like yeah.
0: That.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I know that's something you just don't, I just remember reading about that, you know, like a billion years ago, and that was kind of the last I'd heard about it. Like, you, I don't really hear about temperature-related sort of changes in, in phenotype like I used to. I
0: mean, you'll still hear about it sometimes. It's just, with a lot of things like that, it's become, for lack of a better part of the collective memory of the Herp community. So when it happens, it, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, we've seen this before. And then it gets dropped. Yeah. With all pythons, you used to get what they called the jungle phenotype or the jaguar phenotype, where they had this like really weird melty look to them. And they would just happen randomly. And then and people noticed that it would be because there was a temperature spike. And, you know, after years of everything, oh yeah, it's just, you know, it's an incubation issue. It's an incubation issue. Now when they pop up, Somebody's like, oh, hey, I just hatched out this thing. Could it be a new mutation? And somebody's like, no, that's you know, that's a jaguar mutation. Or that's that's the jaguar phenotype of the jungle phenotype. We see that with incubation issues. And then the conversation immediately dies.
1: Now, does temperature affect, would it affect heritable traits like that, though? Like if you had something at a higher than sort of average, like maybe a step above that. So like if I'm cooking something that like, Eighty-two, and slightly higher would be like eighty-three. If you're talking about something that's at like eighty-four or eighty-five, would that have any bearing on on those traits and how they would be worked
0: on, like an already existing trait?
1: Yeah, just if I if you happen to have something incubating warmer than than normal, does that would is there any way that would affect actual like the genetic ziplocking or zippering of, of things and it, change that phenotype.
0: It could. Um, you know, again, if you're dealing with a mutation to something that kind of involves a checkpoint or you know a pathway that's in some kind of time-dependent manner and you start pushing the clock a little faster in one way or another, it could exacerbate or depending on the condition, maybe depress. The expression
2: mm-hmm. of the pre-existing phenotype. Um, I feel like it also would be species and in species and even locality of species specific because there's so many species of rep of egg-laying reptiles where the nest or the clutch or the the spot of dirt where the eggs are buried is going to spike randomly throughout right. the entire cycle. You know what I mean? So I would imagine certain species, it's irrelevant, while as other ones, it would possibly produce one of those, for lack of better word, mutations.
0: Yeah, and, and you, can, you can see that, um, you know, yeah, it, it's not, usually it's not a matter of, oh my God, it changed by a degree, and so everything's gonna come out looking all weird. I mean, you know, that's part of the reason you just see phenotypic variability across the board is, you know, small changes in expression of genes, whether high or low, faster, slower type of thing. You know, that's why all ball pythons, all carpet pythons, all bards, all corns don't have the exact same pattern, exact same color okay. across the board, even though they have the exact same genetics.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, small little fluctuations will cause, you know the genes to be turned on, you know, a gene isn't like an on off switch. It's kind of like a, a dimmer or like, you know, your hot water faucet where you turn it a little bit, you you know, if I, if I turn my hot water faucet to the middle, I'm getting hot water. I'm just not getting all hot water. If I turn it Mm -hmm. all the way. I'm getting all hot water. Well, if I have a gene that regulates how that faucet gets turned on and that faucet is a second gene, then the expression of the first gene depends on how the second gene works. The expression of something else affects the first gene. So you're, you've are you got a whole combination that's turning things up and down at different rates. And each of those is getting turned at a different rate. You know, The way I turn on my faucet here is different than the way my daughter turns on my faucet. It's different the way that my wife turns on the faucet. We're all turning on the same faucet.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's like what Kevin said where you know, in leopards, the brightest geckos come out at 90 degrees. You know, it doesn't mean I can't make a bright one at 83 or 84. Right. Yeah. Uh, So Henry just texts me with an interesting question. Um, He says he comes from the dog world and no offense to anyone. He's uh, always found reptile breeding to be kind of primitive, similar to the way dog breeding compares to horse breeding. And his reason for saying that is uh, everyone breeds for color, blah blah blah. is it is it possible to breed for specific traits, length, girth, venom yield, and or some of these traits dependent on environmental circumstances?
0: Um, yes and yes.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: Um, I mean we know that like size can be dependent on environmental circumstances when we just look at you know the native environment, we look at things like, dwarf and super dwarf retics and birds. You know, in, right. in solar population, we tend to get those dwarf species. Um, that's an environmental thing. In some cases, it's only environmental in as much as there's not enough food, and so the animals are stunted. But in some cases, it's been going on long enough through geologic time that the animals have evolved to be smaller to fit their environment. You know. People think super dwarfs are all going to be the size of corn snakes, which is ridiculous. But you take a true, just straight out of the wild super dwarf, even if you feed the ever-loving hell out of it, is it going to get big? Yes. Is it going to get mainland big? No. Because it's had that geologic time to have the genotype changed. Um, Yeah. You know, can you breed for traits, you know, to do that? Of course, you can. you can, you know, you can breed for, you know, if you take your biggest animals and you breed them together and then take the biggest offspring from that and breed them together and take the biggest offspring from that and breed them together, you get bigger animals over time. Yeah. The same goes for the opposite. I mean, Garrett Hartle has shown that, you know, he's got animals that are 80% mainland, but they're still the size of super dwarfs because he's done the, you know, I bred a mainland to a dwarf. And I kept the smallest animals and bred them to smaller animals, and kept the smallest from that and bred those back to smaller animals. And so he's he has pushed for the small phenotype through. You know, it's the same selective breeding like with tigers in carpets, except he's instead of looking at a, a pattern phenotype, he's looking at a full body phenotype. Yeah. Um, with venom. I would say yes, you could do it. Um, I more think of it in the opposite way. So I had this conversation with somebody once upon a time. You know, could you ever breed for, say, a non-venomous cobra? And sure, you could. You know, you could take cobras and breed them, and take the babies, and you know, throw a rat in, and find the baby where when it bites the rat, it takes the rat you know, two minutes to die instead of a minute. Right. And then you know, all those babies that where it takes two minutes and breed those together and throw in rats and then find the ones where it takes five minutes.
3: Just right. And whittle minutes. it down and then, yeah. 20
0: minutes. and then you whittle it down and whittle it down and whittle it down. Yeah. And then, you know, you could go even further than that because, you know, you know they're still producing venom. Well then, you know, look at, you know, physiologically the ones that not only are they producing less lethal venom, but their teeth are smaller or their venom glands are smaller. Right. And it- you know, keep selecting for those ones and you eventually could end up with a non-venomous cobra.
2: You could, right. and I imagine you could do it in the same regard in the opposite. Where right. if you're, you
0: could do it in the same regard in the opposite,
2: yeah. Where if if you're going for a higher yield because you want, you're you're running a lab and you have venom production for pharmaceutical research or what have you, and you have a bunch of rattles, you have a bunch of Diamondbacks that all produce, you know, uh, ten cc's, and you got one that produces fifteen or twenty cc's. So you breed that, and you just keep making it more and more and more and more. And before you, you know it, you got. Yeah.
0: 15 to somebody. And then you, you know, you raise those up and you find the ones that, you know, are consistently given 15. You breed those together, yeah. and pull the one out of there, the ones out of there that will make 20s or 30s. Yeah. Sure. You can do that. You know, and you can do it for behaviors too. Um, so the Novobirsk, I think it is. It's a Russian Institute. They've done behavioral studies in animals and domestication. You know, they took foxes and they, you know, they bred them together and they would go into the pens and get the kits and the kits that like started running over to them. Those are the ones that they kept and they, you know, and over just a handful of generations, they started seeing behavioral changes to basically domestication like you would see in dogs, you know, yeah. they're, they're more likely to wag their tails. Mm-hmm. They get the floppier ears. They start getting more playful, but they also did it the opposite direction at the same time. The kits that were like aggressive, they segregated those and only bred them together. And now they've got a whole pop so they've got a whole population of foxes that are, you know, as soon as you open the door, they all come running over to you like a bunch of frantic puppies. But then they've got another group where you open the door and you better be in full body protection because they're just gonna come straight at you and try to maul you.
2: Is there anything more Russian? (laughs) That's true.
0: The same place that did that with foxes, they did it with rats too. And if really? you open the cage on the on the vicious rats, you have to be wearing like a chainmail gauntlet <laughs> because the rats come and attack your hand. Wow! That's Russia is going for crazy foxes.
2: That it is true. I
0: like that. <laughs> like,
1: why? Well, we went one way. We wanted to see if we could go the other too.
2: Yeah. yeah right gnarly. What's, what,
1: what's the uh, selectively breeding to produce a mutation out of nothing? <sighs>
0: so I'm, I'm currently in an argument with some <laughs> uh, with some subsection of the hobby that you would think that this subsection of the hobby which is known for its almost anal retentive, obsessive compulsiveness for purity of localities and phenotypes and somebody popped out randomly an albino and it is known that about three thirty years ago or so it was hybridized to put the albino gene into this species and someone is arguing that no no it, it, it didn't come from that you know well documented hybridization event, what this is is it it's intentional selection over time to make these albino animals from are we
2: are, are we at liberty to say what species?
0: Alterna. Okay.
2: <laughs> Fair enough.
0: I, I didn't really want to name names, but I guess I can I guess I can name the species. Yeah
2: so we'll name the
3: species.
0: Back in the early 90s um, Alterna were hybridized with Ruthvii and albino Ruthvii And then those have been back crossed. And like by ninety-eight, they had them at like I wanna say twelve percent Ruthvii blood. So they looked very, very much alterna-like. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that they're still albino-ruthia or all alterna Ruthvii hybrids, you know. Yeah. And so somebody popped out albinos, and there are a whole bunch of people saying that the reason this guy got albinos is because he selectively and carefully bred over time to create an albino phenotype. And I'm like, no, dude, he is breeding a bunch of generic alterna together, and somewhere in those generic alterna are
1: was something from that stock.
0: Or something that has yeah. that Ruth VI stock in it. And it's just the albino gene from the Ruth VI finally coming into play.
2: And and let me guess, that person doesn't have video documentation of them at Black Gap picking it up off the cut. <laughs> no,
0: and it's, it's not the person who produced them that's arguing that.
1: Of course it's not.
3: It's, it's just some it other
0: guy who's, you know, convinced that. This isn't Rufi. This is this is the this, you know, this guy put a lot of work okay. into his things and he managed to create new albinos out of
2: sure.
3: Yeah.
0: Well,
1: that Finare. ties into something that me and Phil have talked about about like carpondros and stuff. Like if you do that, can you breed out to no. zero that you can that half of the hybrid? Or if it's like a 75% Chondro, 25% carpet
2: well i mean it was burke said it best is that you know if you have a glass of water and you have a cup of coffee and you take a drop of coffee and put it into the or you pour half the cup of coffee in there and you have all this and then you slowly take some out and add water and slowly takes them out and add water and slowly takes them out and add water, you still have remnants of coffee in that cup forever
0: okay yes and no <laughs> okay so by analogy, well, by I, analogy I may, I may have
2: butchered right. the analogy from Burke. My apologies. Well,
0: I mean, by analogy, he is right. You know, okay. this, is, this is the half-life principle. Sure. No matter how many times you divide it, you still have half of 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 half. Right. Um, and in the absolute sense of it, when you think of it that way, yes. That said, when... Well, yes and no. It depends on how you're out breeding back. So you can think of it like if I if I have bred these Carpondros together, mm-hmm. and I, then I breed.
2: You're talking a about you're talking about uh, you. You bred a chondro to a carpet. I You've produced carpet an F one. You F1. have
0: fifty fifties. Right. Uh, okay. 50/50. Now, if I take those 50-50s and bring them back together, technically, the offspring that I get from that are also 50-50s. Right. Okay. But if you look at them on the genetic level, you're going to have a bell curve of distribution of the genes. Mm-hmm. And on the extreme ends, there is a possibility. Now, in the first generation it's a very low possibility but it's still a possibility of getting pure carpet and pure chondro back
3: okay. so if i
0: take the most carpet looking and the most condor looking of those babies and then breed them only to each other so if i take two of these mostly condor looking ones or two of these mostly carpet looking ones and breed them back together then my bell curve is going to be shifted where most of them look more carpet with a little bit of chondro looking one. So if I keep pushing towards those extremes, there is a point where you could purge all of the chondro genetics by pushing one way or all of the carpet genetics by pushing the other way. Okay. If you are just doing the half of half of half of half of halfway depending on how closely related the organisms are, you get to a point where it's kind of like, it's essentially moot because the genes, any gene that may have come from the other is the same as the gene from the normal. So if you just... Yeah, you're kind of just
1: going back to zero. Right,
0: you're basically going back to zero. Yeah. So if we think of these alternative by ruth VI hybrids, you know, if I breed... And I just constantly breed those back to alterna to the point where I get to what would be an ancestral alternative looking genetic stock because the alterna and the eye, you know, maybe it really is the Ruth, VI MHC gene or hox three gene, but those are identical between Ruth, VI and alternate anyways mm-hmm. that I have a pure alternate now then that could be considered a pure alternate because you you would not be able to differentiate them on the genetic level from the hybrid. Okay. But if it's something like, you know, even if I have bred back to alterna a hundred times, if I still have that albino ruthii gene in there and it's popping up, then I can definitely say, no, that's still some kind of bastard animal because that gene is not present in the original wild type stock.
2: Right. But the theory that I just using carpandros to make it simple, I have my 50, 50 Carpondro and I take that 50, 50 baby and I breed it to a fresh carpet. And then that offspring goes to another fresh carpet and that offspring goes to another fresh carpet. And I keep doing this where I'm only taking the babies and breed regardless of what they look like and I bring them back to fresh carpet, to fresh carpet, to fresh carpet in 50, 60, a hundred generations. In theory it will still have chondrogene in it
0: in theory it will yes okay again if, if that chondrogene is indistinguishable code for code from the carpet gene right because it's that you know it's in that ancestral area yeah mm-hmm. then it kind of reached a point of does it really matter
2: right and that's what happened with this albino gray band
0: well yes and no I mean Obviously, it it still has the albino gene in it. Yeah. So it does matter because I can say that never came from an alterna. Yeah. If it was just, if I did not know any other ways, because all the other genes were ancestral genes that are the same between both species, then, you know, it just looks like a generic alterna. It doesn't look like a locality one. It's just a generic looking one. And in that case, you'd be like, I don't know, it's it's just a generic alterna.
1: Yeah. Brilliant. Awesome. Oh, my head feels heavier. Dude, I love me. it.
2: I love it. It's fantastic. That's just,
1: that's something we every time I see Billy post a, a carpondro of his, that's what I think of is like we having that conversation of, you know, if I bred this back and back and back and back and back, you know, could I essentially breed the half one half of that out?
2: Yeah, but I don't know anybody that actually would because the whole point. I mean, to make who funky knows hybrids, how, right? <laughs> but,
1: I mean, you're also—I would only imagine that would take a very long time to. Yeah. Yeah. To boil down, at least in the span of like someone working within their lifetime, or something. I'm sure it could be. Could it even be done within a 60-year time span?
0: I guess. It depends on how hard you push it.
2: I think it also depends on if you ha- how many individuals you have working on one project. You know what I mean? If you had if the three of us were all attempting we, all three of us start off with, you know three hybrids, and all three of us continued to, you know, unmuddle the gene pool and then eventually put them all back together, would it still it would, it would then have more of the original gene? Would
3: have
2: less. Mm -hmm. I don't
1: know. know. But how come, like, in terms of taxonomy and stuff, why is there no standard for them determining what what makes something a separate species or subspecies? Like in science, the place of all like thresholds and and standard standardized lines. And why is there? Yeah, why is there no? Baseline for these things, like with Mex, like Mexican beards. At one point, it was talked about them being there, you know, a separate thing. But I guess someone somewhere at one point did the did the, the the deep digging and said they're 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 not different enough, I guess, to be something else. But they are very clearly phenotypically different, and they are pretty isolated from the other stuff. It. <sighs> Is it just, like, how much of this stuff is basically someone just going and doing a quick look at these things and saying, yeah, I don't see anything, and then moving on and it never being brought up again?
0: All of it. Taxonomy papers are really, the taxonomy is determined by the whim of the person writing the paper. If you've got a person who's a splitter, then they'll come up with a justification for why everything needs to be different. If the person's a lumper, then they'll manage to find a way to make it so that everything is the same. Um, there are very few exceptions to that. One of those exceptions, and I would say that it is what leads to probably a better taxonomic paper for it, would be Daniel Batouche. Yeah. He is a lumper. He is, by his own admission, a lumper.
1: Yeah. He said that and, on the Condro cast. Yeah, he's like, and, I could have done way more with these and I didn't.
0: Yeah, and he even even admitting that he's a lumper, he's like, I had to split these because there's no ifs, no ands, no buts. These are different. So when a lumper looks at something and says, These need to be split, then I'm I feel a lot more comfortable being like, This this right. makes a lot more sense. You know?
1: Yeah. Like if it's making that guy go damn, you know, it's Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah I mean there's a reason why we all reference him and his research because it the facts speak for themselves
1: Yeah he said it he said it himself he said I could have I could have probably split these even more if I had if I you know it, if there's enough pushed, going on he could have he could have easily yeah. split it more but he's if like he I, I pushed you know, for
0: just, more data that he could have you know I think he said that he wanted more data to be able to tighten it up and firm it up to make it bulletproof mm-hmm. basically but even without that, the fact that it's there in his head that, yeah, these, these are probably all different species, that speaks volumes, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah. you know, there are guys out there that just like to split things. I'm sure you could find somebody out there who would be more than happy to write a paper taking Alterna and turning it into 12 different species.
2: Sure.
1: Like One they did with forest species. cobras. <laughs> yeah, it it
2: looked- like, well, oh, yeah, well, the forest <laughs> cobra thing is, is very similar to the king cobra thing and Henry's going to yell at me for bringing this up, but you have people that believe that the data speaks for itself, whether it actually does or not. You have people that uh, see the data and go, okay, it's not one species, it's seven or eight species, but you know what? Let's make it 15 because if they're their own species, we can make them protected and we can write laws and we can get our names in books and so on and so forth. So... Yeah, Whole oh, I,
1: I, I'd imagine I need to I, I don't know the actual details as far as the forest Cobra thing, but I'd imagine it was it was if, from what I remember, it was something fairly similar to the conjure thing where there was like a cryptic diversity and someone finally decided to take the time to look into it.
2: Yeah, I know that there's been a lot of DNA based, you know, uh, taxonomy in recent years, but you, you it, it's almost it's almost crappy. To look at how awesome the is because his sample size was gigantic.
1: Yeah. He, he you know put in, he put in a lot of footwork and like
2: in. so many people only use twenty twenty specimens, fifty specimens, crap, a hundred specimens. I think Daniel said he had like twenty seven hundred specimens or so, something something like that.
1: It was several thousand. Was, yeah,
2: yeah. And like that in itself speaks volumes. Um so I mean I know. I, I won't deny the the forest cobra thing. Um, I'm sure that they are different species. I trust the guys that are way smarter than me. Um, but some of them, like, I, I, I can't tell the difference looking at them, you know? It's like yeah. two, two chondros that don't have any well, kind of identifying marks, like you know? Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, your highland types and stuff, Um uh are all going to look pretty similar. And I mean, pretty much if you looked at it, Condra wise, like they got split into like a qu- like quadrants, like four quadrants, you know, yeah. as far as the range. Um, and I thought it was interesting too, that he talked about, you know, hybridization isn't really a thing with those. Cause I had asked him about that specifically. Like how many did you find that were intergrades? And he pretty much said none because the physical barriers, um, but then it was also something similar to like dart frogs and and those populations in South America where you have multiple species together, but they're not integrating at all. Like there's no hybridization going on because they're they're in their own sort of pockets and areas.
0: Biom you know, segregation. You know, right. they may be in the exact same area, but some of them are on the ground and some of them are six inches off the ground and some of them are two feet off mm-hmm. the ground. So even though they're all in the same geographic point, there's stratification. Vertically,
3: that
2: they don't encounter each other. Yeah, it would and, be- and I was gonna say that with the, the forest cobras. I remember that one of our guys, one of our Tanzanian exporters uh, at Strictly back, you know, fifteen years ago. You know, he sent us forest cobras, and they were tan. Yeah, it like it was like, hey man, what what are these things? He says, oh, these are forest cobras. He goes, we said, well, no, what happened to the black and yellow? Right. And he says, well. If you're east of Dar es Salaam, they're black and yellow. If you go west, they're brown and tan and taupe and beige. I had a,
1: yeah, I had a buddy up in Charleston who had some for a couple of years, and they were those like I, I called them the ugly ones because they weren't yeah, really anything yeah. to look at compared right. to. But he said they were also way more mellow than your typical forest cobra, like much more easier to work with. They weren't mm-hmm. psychotic, and they look completely different.
2: Right. I mean, I could be wrong in my localities and but it
1: might have been South African though I'm
2: thinking for some reason yeah so there, and that that just goes to another point like so just talking about the Dar salaam animals like they're the same species but the phenotypes different but at the same time you go 100 miles south and now it's a different species yeah I mean I, I didn't I don't know the full extent of it because you know forests aren't my cup of tea per se but but yeah it's uh it makes you think a lot so
1: But in your professional opinion, Doc, where would you, if someone said, hey, guess what, tomorrow you can tell us what the threshold's going to be for something being that species, subspecies barrier, where would you set
2: that line? Great question. Great question.
0: I don't know that you can, I don't think that there's any specific line that you can draw because it's going to be different it's going to be different for everything that you're looking at. I mean, nominally there's less than 1% difference between us and chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. So if we start saying that it's less than 1% difference for everything, then, you know, yeah, there are 30 different species rather than just alternate. There are 40 different species of king of rat snake instead of just the Eastern gray rat, you know, it's, it's going to be different across the board. You know, you got to consider different factors as to what really makes for a different species in terms of not just genetics, you know, just genetics play a large role. Yeah, I think it does. But, you know, genetics and behavioral pattern, and environmental pattern, you know, all of these things come together. Um, there are African cichlids. Um, there's a red and a blue species. Genetically, they're basically identical. And they breed true only, you know, reds will only mate with reds, and blues will only mate with blues. Okay. Until you put them in pitch black and they can't tell the difference visually. Really? are breeding with a red or a blue, then they just interbreed. Interesting. So they're basically genetically identical. The only difference is a small change in the pigmentation, which, you know, to all intents and purposes, is just the difference between, you know, an albino and a non-albino. Right. But the behavioral cue is there for the Reds to only want to breed with the Reds and the Blues to only want to breed with the Blues. So is that one species? Or is it two different species? Because even though they're genetically almost identical, there is a very specific behavioral pattern between them that prevents them from interbreeding in the wild.
2: Right, but now you're now you're 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 walking a fine line between uh, subspecies and just you know visual race, right? Because if the, if the DNA is the same, but they're different colors, you know what I mean? I mean, you look at like death adders in the wild that are different race colors, and they will typically only breed with their same race colored despite being in the same niche environment but if you had them in captivity and it's the right time of year they'll quote-unquote hybridize. I'm cool. sure Ipers Iber, gonna yell at me for saying that wrong but
0: <laughs> I know what you're saying.
2: But now at the same time though they're they're the same species they're just they're just different different colors. So I, I don't know that cichlid thing is very interesting. Is it Malallan? Uh I
0: can't remember the exact species.
3: Okay.
1: Fish nerds. It's a whole nother a talking, alcohol man. Talking yeah, about right. a separate species. <laughs> yeah. Don't hybridize those.
2: <laughs> so it's at the two hour mark here, aren't we?
1: Yeah, quarter after.
2: So real quick, I, I gotta I gotta ask real quick on our, our I don't want to say closing remarks, but how are the Kukri's? They're
0: doing well. Um, they're very much attitude, attitude, <laughs> attitude, attitude, attitude. But you know, I like it. little ones like Nice. Nice.
1: And Have you gotten them to eat another ball python shed since that first one?
0: I haven't, but I haven't actually tried. Oh, okay.
1: Seen a lot of bizarre things, but that was definitely up there. Right up there with the Salcutta swimming.
2: Bobbing, you mean? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Something that just, things that just don't feel right. Yeah. Seeing the bird side swim and watching the Kukri eat a shed. Super cool. I remember seeing that picture doing like a double take, being like, what the hell is that? And I was like,
3: what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fun fact I got the bears to eat some quail eggs. Nice. Like, I, I offered it to the boyga and the female cyan, it was all about them. Um, offered them to the and I got no interest. Uh, one of the corns was starting to eat, and then when I opened the tub, decided to stop and not come back. And then I had at least two of the beards eat some, eat some quail eggs, so I thought that was kind of interesting because I don't know if many people have tried that with them. Impressive. Yes.
2: Well, Doc, do you have any uh, closing remarks you'd like to throw in? I know we've kept you on on spotlight the whole night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the barrage.
0: You know, it's fun. This is this is the kind of thing that I enjoy doing. <laughs> um. Yeah. No, I can't think of anything more to cover other than you know obviously as justin said we'll try and get a more complete wraps episode together that you know it's more than that 60 second whiplash that i gave on it you know get pia and paul in and have them explain it better to everybody and get people more interested because they're a bit more articulate on the matter than i am um, but do check out wraps do check out RPI. Definitely get down to Cody and Pia's for the party. If you can make it, you know, take that extra day or two, come down early. It'll be a good time.
1: It's very much worth it.
0: Yeah, yeah
2: man. Right. And for those of you going to look for the rap stuff, it's W-R-A-P-S, correct? Yes. 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 W-R-A-P-S.
0: Um. No. Yeah. The parties are going to be a good time for all it's for a good cause all around. So yeah, kick in and yeah. support it. Yeah. Support the hobby because it's you know, one of the things we all talk about doing. And most of the people involved in this little herpeticulture network, NPR network, they're really good about that. But, you know, spread the word. Um, You know, mm-hmm. get it out to other people because other people find out about these things and The more people we get involved, the bigger the footprint is that we cover and the better it is for everybody all around.
2: Well put, sir. Well put. Hell yeah, brother.
1: All right. Well, where can people find you if they have more
0: Uh, (laughs) entry-grade questions? Facebook, Travis Wyman. I am not the motocross racer. Don't message the motocross racer because he's not going to be able to he's help you. <laughs> he's probably going to be very confused. He's going to be very confused. You can find me on Instagram, uh, Snakes and snakesandbakes. Uh, you know, post there. You can message me there. Uh, you can email me asplundii at gmail.com.
2: I love it, man. Yeah, it was a good episode. I enjoyed it. Love having you on. I really I do. Enjoy
0: being on. appreciate you guys having me.
1: This was episode eighty-three, brought to you by Puget Sound Puget Python, Python. right here. There we go. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. Uh, I think they have some stuff for sale. They were vending a show over the weekend, so they
2: were. And you know what I you know? What I noticed, my favorite part of their their booth pictures from the show was the Steve Irwin Funko Pops in yeah. the middle. <laughs> I was like. That's my Gendra.
3: Yep,
1: excited to Love hang out it. with them. They're going to be at the uh, the preservation party as well and Daytona. So yeah, it's gonna be awesome. The gang's the- gonna be there
2: in the flesh.
1: I am very excited. It's
2: gonna be awesome. It's
1: gonna be a good weekend. Yeah, but we will see everyone Thursday. It'll be Phil, myself, and Jake uh, as we get Jake back into the saddle of things and.
2: Get him back up on that horse.
1: Yep. Uh, we will see everyone later.
2: Again, Travis, thank you. We love you.
0: Yes. Well, not a problem, like I said. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
3: Anytime.
2: Anytime. Bye.